Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at a message about natural disasters that I've entitled The Domestication of God, The Domestication of God. On or off? You're right. Is that better? I'm getting help. Um, I've needed it all morning, and so don't, don't be surprised. You know what I did wrong? I picked out my own tie this morning. That's, that's where I started going wrong. I've noticed, serious, this is a true story. I've noticed, I'm telling the truth here, which I, I always tell the truth from the pulpit, except when I'm being sarcastic, so okay. Um, uh, I've noticed that when my wife picks out my tie for me, I get so many more comments about how nice my tie is. When I pick it out, nobody notices my tie. So uh, I don't know what that means. I think my wife is paying people to come tell me. Your tie looks so good this morning. No, I don't believe that at all. Romans chapter 8. Um, I, I'm uh, going to start a, a, a series about what's wrong with the world. I know we know that there's something wrong with the world. No, none of us dispute that, disputes that. We're going to look today at natural disasters. And then next week, Dr. Livioka is going to speak to us. And then the week following, I want to pick up... Um, with another aspect of this, but in Romans chapter 8, we see an important truth that we live in a, in a broken world. The world does not, does not work and does not run the way that God designed it to work and the way that God designed it to run back in Genesis chapter 1. You remember at the end of that chapter, verse 31, God looked at all that he had created and he saw that it was very good. Well, I can tell you today it's not very good. And so we're going to look at one reason that it's not very good. In Romans chapter 8, follow along as I read out loud verses 20, 21, and 22. I'll read it out loud. You just follow along. Romans 8, 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption under the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Notice again verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to look into your word, and there's truth here. There's life-changing truth if we will allow you, if we will allow you, to speak to our hearts this morning. And uh, this is a difficult topic for me, and, and I'm sure some will have trouble hearing it. So we're asking, Father, that your Holy Spirit would meet with us, would take the truth that's in your word, and as an arrow straight to the mark, would bring it alive to our hearts. Your word is quick, it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and we, we want to see its power I want to see its power in my life today, and we want to see its power in our lives today. Thank you for gathering us here this morning. I pray for those that are ill and unable to be with us, and I'm asking, Lord, that you'd raise them up. I'm so glad that Carol was with us this morning again. Thank you. Others, Lord, that have not been with us for a while because of ill health, I'm asking you to raise them up and enable them to be with us uh, next Sunday. Lord, we love you. You're such a good God. You do so many good things for us, and every day, uh, you pour out bountiful blessings upon us. We're so thankful we can live in this country and at such a time as this and have family and, and a church family that truly loves us. And it's because you first loved us that we love you and that we have your love shed abroad in our hearts so that we can love others. Lord, we're thankful. 
And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, May 16th. Uh, 1873, I came across this story recently and was shocked. A church in Dixon, Illinois, not Dixon, California, a church in Dixon, Illinois, uh, was going to have a baptismal service, and, and uh, much like our church was not long ago, found out that they didn't have a baptism, baptismal tank, so they were going to go down to the river there that runs through the town of uh, Dixon, Illinois. They went down Galena Avenue. Uh, there was about 200 of them for this baptism, and uh, many of them stood along the riverbank as uh, the, 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 the pastor, Pastor Pratt was his name, went down into the water with those to be baptized. But some of them found it helpful to, to observe the baptism from the bridge. There was a bridge that ran over the river there, a toll bridge. This was 1873. It was made mostly out of steel, but it also had some wooden elements to it. And this bridge that spanned the river, many of the people walked up and, and stood on the side of that bridge to look down into the water to observe the baptisms. The baptisms were done as preachers are often do. Uh, he took the opportunity while people were gathered there to exhort them to be committed to the Lord when suddenly there was a creaking and a cracking sound and that bridge literally broke and turned over and dumped people into the water. Not only dumped them into the water, but the bridge fell then on top of them so that they were trapped under the bridge. 50, excuse me, 46 people died. 56 people were injured. One body turned up 14 miles downriver. In some cases, uh, people could see their loved ones trapped under the water, under that mass of steel and wood, and they could see them, but they could not rescue them. In one case, one lady's body was so, lifeless body was so entangled in that structure, it took them two days just to cut her body out of the, out of the structure. I ask myself, why did this tragedy happen? I mean, they were doing a baptism. That's a crazy time for this bridge to fail like that. We've had a lot of natural disasters in 2023. Maybe you remember some of them. I'm just going to ask you to take just five, six seconds here without responding. Just what do you remember to be the worst measured by the number of lives lost? What do you remember to be the worst natural disaster in 2023? Fire. And the short answer is the earthquake in Turkey and Syria that killed almost 60,000 people in February. Some of you probably remember that earthquake buildings just collapsed top down. Tens of thousands of people died in that earthquake. Uh, just last month, we had a fire in Hawaii, burned down the town of Lahaina. And because it was such a fast moving fire, people were, were unable to escape. And almost 100 people, they, they now believe almost 100 people died in that fire. Some only escaped literally by jumping in the ocean. You remember seeing people there floating in the water because that was their only chance to escape the fire. Why does God allow natural disasters like this to happen? There were some more disasters. This month, we had an earthquake in Morocco. The earthquake in Morocco killed uh, about 3,000 people, best, I, best number I could find, uh, most accurate number I could find, and every one of those people was precious to God. Then just a few days later, there was a rainstorm in North Africa. Some of you uh, recall hearing about two, bridges, two uh, dams collapsing. Two dams failed spectacularly, and the town of Derna, Libya, was washed out to sea. It's interesting for, for us, Derna, Libya, has about 100,000 people, which is about the same 
size population-wise as Vacaville. And uh, those dams collapsed. The first uh, dam collapsed because there was too much water behind it, sent a wall of water rushing toward the second dam, which was not built for that type of, of, of a flow. That dam collapsed, and I read that a quarter of the city, measured by area, a quarter of the city was washed away. They've now accounted for about 4,000 people who died, but there are still over 10,000 people unaccounted for, probably washed out to sea. Why does God allow these terrible tragedies to happen? This first came to my attention, just as a young man, back in 2004. Some of you remember the Indian Ocean earthquake and the tsunami that killed about 230,000 people from from um, uh, Madagascar in, in, in Africa all the way around to uh, Indonesia. 230,000 people. I had some Mongolians who are not Christians. They asked me, how does this work? How, how can you say that God is loving and that he loves us, and yet here are 230,000 people that die? And so I had to go to God's word and I had to get answers. By the way, the Bible does have answers. The Bible always has answers for us. And um, a lot of people, it came up again just a couple of weeks ago. I was talking with a man and he said, if, if God is so loving, why do people die in natural disasters? They, they sort of think of it this way. If you can think of it in a, in a logical sequence, they start with this idea that evil and suffering exist in the world. And their thought is if God were omnipotent, he would be able to, pre to prevent evil and suffering. And if God were wholly good, that is, if he were a God of love, he would want to, he would desire to prevent evil and suffering. And if he were omnipotent and wholly good, then there would be no evil and suffering. Therefore, they say, there must not be a God who is either wholly good, loving, or who is omnipotent. But let's start from the other end of this. Seriously, let's start at the other end. And I think through this with me. If there were no God, if there were no God that existed, how would we know what was good and what was evil? I mean, why is it bad? And excuse me, I, I, I just, I, I, this, I'm not saying this for myself. If you're watching at home, give me five seconds here. Don't, don't turn off your uh, television here. Something is going on here. Okay. Why is it bad that thousands of people die? If the world's biggest problem is climate change, if, I, I don't think it is, but if it were, getting rid of people would be good for stopping climate change. No, no, I'm just saying, if, if that's, that's your reasoning, right? How do we know what's good and evil? I thought about bringing a ruler, but you know, most of us know what a straight line uh, looks like. Let me use this illustration instead. This is a square. Uh, you say it's not square. No, it's not square, but it's called a square. And Kenny, you know what we do with these, right? In fact, this one has the markings probably to build all kinds of things on it, but I'm just going to use it as a square. This tells us what a 90-degree angle is. Now, the truth is, I could, I could draw, you could draw an 89-degree angle, and it would look really close to 90, and we'd probably say, yeah, that's good enough. But when you're building, you don't want an 89-degree angle. You want a 90-degree angle. I found this out when I moved to Mongolia, and nothing was square. I'm serious, it was really bad. You could put a pencil on the floor, it rolled away from you. 
Why do we need this? We can, we can be, well, it'll be close, right? No, no, no. When you're constructing things, you don't want 89 degrees. You don't want 92 degrees. You want 90 degrees. How do you know what 90 degrees is? Well, you have a square that shows you that's the standard for what the 90 degrees is. L let's think about this. How do we know what is good? Because there is a God who is good. He's a moral God, and when he created human beings, he put in us a sense that there are some things that are good and some things that are bad. Now, as human beings, we've turned that completely upside down, and you're right. There are people who say what is good is bad, and they all say what is bad is good. I understand that, but they are violating their own conscience when they do that. And God is a just God. He will judge fairly. That sense of moral right and wrong, that sense of good and evil, that itself comes from God. And if there were no God, you wouldn't have that sense of moral good and evil. So keep that in mind. That's my first answer to the question, why does God allow for bad things to happen? Well, my question to you is, how do you even know that they're bad unless there is a God who's a moral God who says this is good and this is bad. Now, I mentioned earlier, and I'll mention again, Genesis 1.31 says that when God looked at everything that he had made, at the end of that first week, the end of the sixth day, technically, he looked down and he saw that everything was very good. He had created everything there was to be created, because he did that in six days. He finished with the pinnacle, if you will, of his creation, Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were sinless. At that point, they were sinless. There was no disease, no sickness, no death, no mortality. There were no natural disasters. Well, what happened? And the answer is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, I'll read again to you verse 20. For the creature, that is what God had created, was made subject to vanity. That word vanity simply, mean, simply means emptiness, purposelessness. There are things that happen now that appear to the human eye, to the human mind, to have no point, to be pointless, to be purposeless, to be empty. And God subjected his creation to that purposelessness. And verse 22 tells us that the whole creation now groans and travails. The idea here being a woman who is about to give birth. And if you've never sat with your wife through a childbirth, don't. <laughs> It's a, it's a very painful experience. That's the way it is. And it's not because God is not in control. Did you see what he said in Isaiah chapter 45? We read that as our scripture reading. Isaiah 45, 7, God said, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do these things. Now, create evil doesn't mean create sin. Creates the natural disasters. The bad things. God is still in control when there are earthquakes. God is still in control when there are wildfires, when dams break and thousands of people die. God is still in control. Now, some heartbreak and some pain that we experience as human beings, in fact, a lot of it is caused by our own sinfulness, our own selfishness. Let me illustrate that, and then we'll go to this, that that is not caused by our own sinfulness or selfishness. But the prime example is drunk driving. Do you realize that the latest statistics I could find, which were for 2021, an average of 37 people die every day because of drunk driving. Now, sometimes it's a drunk driver who dies, but more often it's an innocent person 
who's driving down the road, minding their own business, and a drunk driver crashes into their car. 37 people a day. Well, I would think the solution would be obvious. Let's just stop selling alcohol. <laughs> we tried that. We call it prohibition. And uh, we said no more non-medicinal use of alcohol. And Americans got really upset. We like our booze. I, I don't mean you and I, okay? <laughs> But I'm just saying, as Americans, in general, we like our booze. We like our alcohol. Even though 37 people die every day, we would rather be able to buy our beer and our wine and our liquor than to get rid of it, to save 37 lives. Now, here's, I'm, I'm illustrating here. A couple of years ago now, I had the opportunity to be at a funeral I led the funeral service for a young man, he was in his early 20s, who had tragically died in a drunk driving accident. He and three of his buddies, there were four of them, they were on their last day of shore leave before they left on a Navy ship. And so they went out, last chance to party before they left port, and they got drunk, and one of them driving drove literally into a brick wall. And all four of them were instantly killed. Here's the sad thing. At the end of that funeral service, and I had a chance to give the gospel at the end of that funeral service, they invited everyone to go to another location where they were going to have a meal for those who came. And I think that's appropriate after a funeral to have a meal. So I thought I'd be glad to go. I went and there they were serving beer and wine and liquor. The same things that had just killed their young son. Why? Because we like our booze. We like our alcohol. I mean, it just, that's, that's who we are. And then we like to blame God. Why did God let that young man die? Well, I think the responsibility for the young man's death is on that young man and his friends who chose to drink and drive. Consider the, uh, the disaster I mentioned earlier, the one in Derna, Libya, where the two dams collapsed. By the way, the height of one dam, the, the, the deputy mayor of the city of Derna said they were not that big. Well, I went back and I looked and one of the dams was 240 feet high. That's a big dam. There's a lot of water behind that. And there had been a company, you can read, there's a lot of details that I'm going to leave out, but you can read about it. There had been a company who had been paid literally millions of dollars to do maintenance on that dam. And none of the articles I could find, nobody seems to know if they did that maintenance or not. So let's imagine that company took the millions of dollars and did not do the maintenance on those dams. Is it God's fault that they collapsed and thousands of people were killed? Or is it man's greed? Taking money for a maintenance contract. I mean, this was years ago. It wasn't like the maintenance contract was signed last month. I believe it was 2015 when the maintenance contract was signed and then not doing the work or doing it improperly or taking shortcuts. I was, as an example of, in this case, nobody died by, by God's grace, but I was uh, taking classes on a school building, at a school building that was on a street. And one day I came and the street was closed. The street was closed because they were building a new building just down the street and the building had collapsed and the bricks had fallen into the street. And again, by God's grace, no one was in the building when it collapsed because it was still in the process of construction. So I asked some questions. I'm a curious guy. And I found out literally a few hours before the building collapsed, you'll get a kick out of this, Kenny, 
the building inspector had been there and had signed off on the building. Now, my guess is the building inspector, this was in Mongolia, my guess is the building instructor got some extra gifts, <laughs> parting gifts as he left the building. Yeah. Is that God's fault that that building fell down? Many of the buildings in um, uh, Turkey and in Syria that collapsed uh, were built by companies, and now they're wondering if the companies built them the way they claimed they had, engineered the way that they were to be engineered, because that is earthquake country there in Turkey. Is that God's fault? Let me just point out that much human pain and suffering is the direct result of sinful actions on the part of human beings. And God intended for sin to be painful. Because if sin wasn't painful, what would we do? we just keep sinning. <laughs> yes, Alice, but pain is part of the process of teaching us don't do that. Can you imagine if you could touch a hot stove and it did not burn you? You think, that would be great. I don't know how many times I've been burned. I had, my son was working at a restaurant where they used hot cooking oil, and I don't know how many times he came home and he had burns on his skin, and I said, wouldn't it be neat if you couldn't feel that when the hot oil touched your skin? You think that'd be great. Well, we have a condition called Hansen's disease that robs your body of its ability to feel pain, and the result is a slow destruction of your arms and your legs because you damage it, you hurt it, but there's no pain. And so you continue to use it until literally, in some cases, things break off. Pain, God intends for sin to be painful so that we quit sinning. Now, I want you to remind you here that God is forgiving, but sin is not. God forgives. God stands ready to forgive you today for any sin you have committed. Past, present, future. God's ready to forgive. But sin is not forgiving. Sometimes people will say to me something like, you know, I thought God would be forgiving. Well, God is forgiving. It's the consequences of sin that will stick with you the rest of your life. Somebody who's in a drunk driving accident and is paralyzed they're going to remain paralyzed even after God's forgiven them for drinking and driving. Now, God can heal, but the consequences of sin often stay with us. So God is a God of second chances. Even Manasseh in the Old Testament got a second chance. But sin has its consequences. So let me encourage you, if you're really concerned about all the pain and the heartache that's in the world, and I encourage you to be concerned about it. If you love people, you cannot be unconcerned about it. Let me encourage you, forsake sin. Sin not only hurts you, it hurts the people around you. But some pain and some heartache is completely outside, apparently outside of human choices altogether. Uh, the, the fire in uh, Lahaina, as far as I know, was not set on purpose by an arsonist. And yes, there's some disputes about how it was handled. But as far as I un understand, nobody was intentionally sinning, trying to burn down the city. But the city burned down and literally 100 people, almost 100 people died. What about those disasters? Well, those disasters are a reminder that the world is a broken place. It isn't the way God created it to be. And that's what Romans tells us, that the whole creation travails, groans in pain together. 
Natural disasters are a reminder to us that God, not man, is in control. Natural disasters are a reminder that God, not man, is in control. In Isaiah 45, 7, again, God says, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, it's at this point that we say, okay, well, then if God controls all events, we want some answers. Why does God allow a fire to burn down Lahaina? Why does God allow an earthquake to kill thousands of people in Morocco? We want answers. One time, my wife and I came home. We had been out doing some shopping in Mongolia. And when we arrived home, the babysitter was there. She was apologizing profusely because there was oatmeal all over the house. <laughs> Up and down the hallways, in the bedrooms, on the beds. And we sat our children down because we knew the babysitter had not done it. We sat our children down and we said, what happened? You know what? Sometimes we'd like to sit God down and say, what happened? And this is why I entitled this message, The Domestication of God, because God is, cannot be domesticated. I can't sit God down and demand answers from him. He is God. God is not answerable to me. I'm answerable to God. God doesn't owe me an explanation. That is, if I may be so bold, that is the point, the main point of the book of Job is that God does not owe us an explanation. Some people say, well, the main point of the book of Job is to explain the cause of suffering. Well, if that's the case, the book does a terrible job. Because at the end, do you know why Job suffers? Well, yeah, there's this great cosmic contest between Satan and God. Okay, that's true. But does the book of Job give you any evidence that Job knows that at the end of the book? In fact, when God finally arrives on the scene in Job 38, and I'm going to read from my notes here, God begins with this question, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this who is throwing shade and, and bringing less light to the situation because he is ignorant? And then God goes on to ask Job 58 more questions of which Job can answer none of them. Now you tell me, is God giving Job an explanation? Doesn't sound like it. Then God says to Job, after 58 questions, he says, shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Do you think you have something to teach me, God says to Job? And you know Job's reply, he says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. God doesn't owe us an explanation. If you struggle with that, you struggle with the nature of who God is. That's why in Isaiah 45, he says, I am the Lord and there is none else. You need to know that God is sovereign and God is wise and God is good and he is a God of love, but he doesn't owe us an explanation for everything he does. And I'm going to go further and say the Bible teaches us even if God gave us an explanation, I doubt we'd be able to understand it. Because the Bible says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Now, I, it doesn't say God is foolish. It's just saying if we took God at his most foolish point, which God's infinite, so he doesn't have a foolish point, but if we did, our wisdom still wouldn't reach to his foolishness. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure 
There's some, been some times in my life where I said to God, why is this happening this way? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family? I've done this, 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 and this, and God, I don't understand why you're doing this, 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 and this. And I'm convinced that if God were to have shown me, if God were to have shown me, my mind would have exploded. Because I'm just not that smart. God's wisdom is so much wiser than mine. We can't domesticate God. We can't make him our servant. We can't make him answerable to us. He's not in my house where I say, okay, God, this is my place. You owe me an explanation. No, this world is my father's world and he doesn't owe me an explanation for why he does what he does. Natural disasters, whether they are caused or aided by man's sinfulness or whether they seem wholly apart from that, but natural disasters are always a call to us to repent. Natural disasters are always a call to us to repent. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 13, and we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, but in Luke 13, there had been some people who had died when a tower fell and killed them. And Jesus said, do you suppose that these men who died when the tower fell, do you suppose they were more wicked than all the other people in Jerusalem and that's why the tower fell on them? He said, no, except you repent, you all repent, he says to the folks that are listening, you all shall likewise perish. And I'm convinced that's one reason as human beings we don't like natural disasters because we like to be in control. And we like to think that we've got everything figured out and there shouldn't be an earthquake so strong that it knocks our buildings down. There shouldn't be a rainstorm so violent that it knocks out a dam. There shouldn't be an accident so violent that people are killed. Somehow we think we should be able to control everything and it bothers us that we're not in control. But natural disasters are a reminder to us that we are not God. The Lord, He is God. He controls, He ordains, He arranges. And we can either submit to that, and repentance may be a part of that. We can either submit to that, say, you're right, God, you're in control. Or we can be, God, I don't understand. You can't do this. And that's our attempt to domesticate God. Now, I want to give you some hope before I end this message and uh, Caleb, you can get to that slide that's just entitled Hope. Let me give you some hope. Because while the Bible doesn't have all the answers, the Bible has some answers that will help us. And I want you to start back in Romans chapter 8 and verse 20, where it says, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. The creature, God's creation, was made subject to vanity. Who? made God's creation subject to vanity. God made his creation subject to vanity. But here's why it says in the end of the verse there, by reason of him, that's by reason of God who has subjected the same in hope. You see, God does have a plan. And God's plan ends with hope for you and for me. There'll be some steps along the way that I don't understand, Sometimes it'll be someone else's sin that affects me, and I don't understand that. Sometimes it'll be a natural disaster that wipes out years of planning, and I don't get that. But God has hope in the end. Now, I tell you what, that's something the atheist does not have. 
the atheist, the evolutionist, the one who does not believe God's in control, the one who believes that mankind can change the planet if we just all drive electric vehicles, those people, they don't have hope. They don't know the God that you and I know because God's given us his word. This is where the hope is. The hope isn't in mankind's behavior. The hope is in God. He's the one who subjected the creation to vanity, to purposelessness, to seeming pointlessness. But the reason was, is there is hope. Remember, and I said this earlier, God is forgiving. We serve a merciful God. You can have your sins. You can know your sins are forgiven. And that, yes, something bad may have happened to you, but it's not because God's just beating up on you, trying to punish you and make your life hard. We talked about it Wednesday night. Sometimes God has to beat the dents out of our lives. We're talking about a car. You get in a wreck and it's tempting just to put Bondo on it and then just spray paint it again and say it's good as new. But that's not the way it works. You get those body and fender guys and they start beating on that with it. I mean, they get a really big hammer and they smack it really hard. I, I remember one time I was trying to help a guy and, you know, I'm sort of timidly tap, tap, tap. He said, you're, you're going to be there a long time if you hit it like that. Just pull that hammer back. Give it a great big whack. Why? Because it's already dented. You've got to undent it. But even in undenting our lives, even when God is working to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, God is merciful. If you've got a sin in your life that's causing you pain and anguish, tell God about it. Confess it to him. Find his forgiveness and find his grace to change and not continue in your sin. God's also just. And sometimes the source of our pain is somebody else doing bad stuff to us. And that is frustrating. Because what you want to do is you want to end the problem. <laughs> but you know what? You can trust that God is just and that he will judge your enemies righteously. I, I believe, as many Christians do, that it's going to become increasingly more difficult to stand up for truth in a society that's based on lies. But we don't have to judge our enemies because God is going to judge his enemies. God is a God of justice, and God is also gracious. God will give us grace to not only endure difficulty, not only to get through our problems, but to thrive in the midst of turmoil if we'll lean into his grace and ask him for the help we need. So there is hope in our pain. But also I want to remind you when it comes to hope that you are not alone. You say, well, I sure feel alone. Well, then look around you because you've got a whole room full of church that wants to be a help to you. And I mean that. Even this week, some of you called others of you and said, I need prayer. I need help. I need an encouraging. Can we get together? I just, I got to see somebody. And I can tell you because I, I, I hear these uh, events. People picked up the phone and talked to you, didn't they? People got together with you. There's hope because you are not alone. Satan wants you to think that you're all alone in your dark valleys. That there's nobody who really cares about you. Well, again, please look around because there are people that care about you. 
And let me encourage you, uh, if you're not going through a dark valley and somebody reaches out to you for help, take it seriously. We need to help each other. We need to support each other. And by the way, don't wait until you're in trouble to make a commitment to God and by extension to make a commitment to one of his churches. Don't, don't wait till you're in trouble. Don't be like the Mongolians. They would only show up for church when the bad things were happening. And then we, by God's grace and with God's help, we get them through that bad event in their life. And guess what? They disappear again for a couple months or a year. And then pretty soon they come back. Oh, I've got another problem. I say, yeah, I know you've got another problem. How did you know? You're here. <laughs> you don't come unless you have a problem. Don't be that kind of Christian. Find a church where you can get rooted. You can get grounded. It doesn't have to be my church. Doesn't have to, this isn't my church. It doesn't have to be Elmira. But, but it does need to be, you need to be somewhere where you can be rooted and grounded. Number one, so you can help others. And number two, so you can find the help you need when you're going through your dark valley. We can trust that God loves us, that God is a God of loving kindness, He's a God of goodness, He's a God of justice, He's a God of peace, He's a God of hope. He's a God of purpose, He's a God of order, He's a God of power, He is the Almighty. And just because you and I don't understand all the things that happen in our lives, and I don't, I can't give you answers for everything that's happened in your life, just because we don't understand doesn't mean that God doesn't care. And again, you have a community of believers right here at Elmira that love you. They want to see God's best for your life. And yes, you may have to walk through some dark valleys as you go through the consequences of years or even decades of sinful choices. But guess what? We're willing to walk with you if you'll make a commitment to Jesus Christ and find His grace and His strength. So before we close today, here's the invitation that I'm going to give in a minute. Do you know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life? Because every natural disaster is a call to repentance. And then secondly, and I feel led to take it this direction, maybe some of you are struggling with bitterness toward God because of the choices he's made in your life. Maybe he's given you a chronic illness and you don't see why. It wasn't any choice you made. It wasn't any sinful action of yours. You just have something the doctors say, yep, that's what you got. Or even worse, the doctors say, we don't know what you got, but it's bad. <laughs> and you say, God, this isn't fair. My, my neighbor over there, he drinks and he smokes like a chimney and he's in good health. Listen, you can trust that God in his infinite wisdom and in his goodness has chosen for you to bear that chronic illness. Maybe it's a, a person in your life that is a real antagonist, constantly persecuting you and, and pushing all the wrong buttons. And you want to lash out in anger and, and, and vitriol and you want to tell lies about them just like they tell lies about you. And you say, God, this isn't fair. I feel like I'm a Christian fighting with both hands tied behind my back because I got to tell the truth and I got to love my enemies and I got to pray for them. Again, don't be bitter at God. God has a purpose. Maybe he's banging out some dents in your life. Maybe he's banging out some dents in the other person's life. Don't harbor bitterness in your heart toward God because of some evil that's happening to you. Father, thank you for the hope that you give us in Christ Jesus. That you have not subjected the creation to vanity 
out of some perverse spirit, but no, because you have a hope that you're going to bring out of this, that you're going to take a corrupt world and in your almighty power and your infinite wisdom and in your perfect timing, you're going to recreate it, a new heaven and a new earth. Without mortality, without sickness, without death, without sin. Father, we look forward to that day. We are so eager to be with you in your presence forever. But we know you've put us on this earth for a reason. You've given us a job to do, to be witnesses of your great power, to be witnesses of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that pays for our sin. And we're thankful, Lord, that you've called us to that. We ask, Father, for those Christians that are struggling with bitterness towards you because some natural disaster or some event in their life or some person's Uh, sinful, selfish behavior has harmed them and they're bitter towards you. Would you give them, grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That you are a loving God, that you are a good God, that all the circumstances you've ordained for their lives are good if they'll submit to you and trust you. Perhaps someone this morning who is not yet a Christian, they're holding on to their sin, they're so sure that they, they don't need to worry about it. Maybe they don't believe in you. I'm asking your Holy Spirit to convict them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment so that they'll turn from their evil and come to you asking for that forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, whatever the need is this morning, would your Holy Spirit work in our hearts to bang out the dents of our sinfulness and selfishness and develop in us that Christ-like character. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.